Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Veteran fixed income portfolio manager Jeff Moore is today's guest. For Canadian investors, Jeff is involved with many Fidelity Canada funds, including Fidelity Multi-Sector Bond Fund, Global Bond Fund, U.S. Monthly Income, and North Star Balanced. With the Bank of Canada announcing a 75 basis point rate hike, there are now questions surrounding how other central banks will follow and what effect this will have amongst investors. The bond market has had an extremely volatile year, but is it now at a buying level? And what could the U.S. CPI print tell us about where bonds and yields are headed in the months ahead? Jeff and host Pamela Ritchie unpack all of this and more today. Today's podcast was recorded on September 8th, 2022. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects. I'm Pamela Ritchie. Great to see you, Jeff. Are you in Canada? I am in Canada, yes. Good to have you back. Yeah. That's great. What of the volatility? What do we do with this? Why is it so intense? Part and parcel of volatility, let's just level set, is partly because the Fed and the Bank of Canada have pulled out of the marketplace in terms of doing any quantitative tightening, or in this case, quantitative easing or tightening right now. They're doing very little of each. The bond markets are kind of on their own to price everything. And with massive uncertainty about will the Fed keep going, will they stop, the Bank of Canada, how many more, how many... So when you have that, plus the fact that the big buyers of government bonds in the last few years have just stepped away some, not too far away, but stepped away some, you're, you're getting daily volatility of five to 10 basis points. And, and it's like, it's one thing I really want investors to think about is every day, if the 10-year note in the U.S. moves eight to 10 basis points, this is what we used to get in the 1990s. We're kind of back to that. And I don't want to overthink it, right? And it just is. It's, and there may not be a lot of signaling in that eight to 10 basis points today. So, you know, two days ago, we had a big sell off in rates. In the last two days, we rallied it all back. And so there was no signal in it. It was just the fact that big buyers have stepped away for a short period of time. So, I mean, it's fascinating because it's hard. We are repricing everything, right? I mean, everything is. And, and as you say, that creates clarity. I know you've said that in the past. So it's a process. We're not very patient, though, ultimately. It really seems to be painful. So what, what, what are investors meant to do with all of this? Well, you know, we're all win-now people. We like to win and win fast. And, you know, we like high-speed internet. We like everything fast. Here's the thing. When the Federal Reserve is engaged like it is, like the Bank of Canada is engaged, the ECB is now really engaged, when they're raising rates, the NPV of everything goes down. That is the most obvious statement. But I think it's important to realize the NPV of everything goes down or at a minimum, it's a headwind to how much total return you can get. So you're kind of as an investor caught in this vortex where you have to wait until we get enough info that we rolled over on inflation 
so the central banks can slow down so that then your investment portfolios can roll again. Well, I think you hit it in the head. I think you used the word big. What we're doing now as, a, as a investors is we're loading on a couple of numbers. We decided that the numbers that matter are unemployment and, and employment job creation and CPI. We decided those two numbers matter above almost all else in the marketplace. And we're loaded on those because the central bankers are loaded on. And so we're kind of in this rolling 30 days, Pamela, where every 30 days we're doing a checkup is a market to say, OK, is the Fed, the Bank of Canada, ECB on its way to getting inflation back to that 2 percent target they say they have? And so when you're at 7 or 8 percent, depending on which country you're in. Inflation. Yeah. And inflation. When you're in that kind of inflation, you need to be pointing down towards the 2 percent. The market long term says, hey, Fed, the Bank of Canada, they're going to have inflation done and dusted. We're going to get it back. And it's true. The Fed and the Bank of Canada have all the tools they need to handle inflation. We may not like how those tools reacted to risk assets, but they have the tools. And so what we're looking for every month now is confirmation that we're on the path to 2%. And when we get that confirmation, risk assets can do well. And when we get that confirmation, well, we don't get that confirmation. We say, well, we have another 30 days, almost like, you know, you know, Groundhog Day. We have another 30 days of this stuff. So confirmation, meaning CPI print next week, is is less. I mean, we're going in the right direction. That, that's the confirmation we're looking for. Yeah, like to me, everything is about 8, 8.30 on Tuesday. Like everything, I don't think investors should worry about a thing until 8.30 on Tuesday. <laughs> and you should all be watching at 8.30. And what you're looking for in core is month over month, a negative number, maybe used car prices fall enough. We have some energy declines potential in the U.S. If you get the month over month number, it comes in negative. You know, my sense is you could get a very nice asset rally, you know, a rally like they read about. But month over month, if the number comes at 0.5 or higher, basically that'll say to the marketplace, oh, these higher rates are going to persist at least a few more months longer than I thought. And so the front end will have to sell off a little bit more and the curve will invert. So from that, do we then, I mean, the five-year, five-year forwards is sort of a place that I know you've spoken to us about before as as a very good place to sort of begin looking essentially the five-year five-year forward so think about a 10-year bond you could buy a 10-year bond or you could buy a five-year bond now and in five years buy another bond and when you bootstrap it again from your first year cfa you know you you'll see it has an implied inflation well the five-year five-year forward is implying right now that the bank of canada and the federal reserve have this done investing inflation's dead in five years what we don't know is the path there. In fact, if we do the two-year, two-year forward, we kind of think as a, as a market that the, that inflation will be done and dusted by then, which means we need a path to get to two. In the next two years, we've got to go from seven to two percent inflation. That's the path. That's painful, though, right? I mean, that sounds painful. It could be painful, but we need monthly confirmations or we're on pace to that number. Otherwise, we're going to start pushing that date out, or you have to think the Fed gets more aggressive. In either case, it means the NPV of everything takes another hit, right? It's not just the bond market here. And so that's where on this rolling 30-day thing is where our head is at. Day, watch the loaded number on CPI. That's probably the whole month, and then you're going to get right into the Fed. Don't call for pivots because the Fed and the Bank of Canada, we talked about this, you, you and I, a few times, family. The Bank of Canada, the Fed needs to be, do not have the credibility, and more than that, their leadership, Chair Powell, Governor Macklin, they don't believe 
their forecasts in the short term are good enough to believe that they can call a pivot in a month. So that means the market has to be at these stickier levels for a while until we get raging amounts of confirmation. I mean, the forecasting is sort of goes to the whole discussion of credibility and where where they've been very bad at it. But I guess you say on the other side, it's, it's been an extraordinary time. So I, I don't know. I don't know what you do with all that. Well, I, I do think if you go back a year, I think that, you know, if, if they had a do over, the Bank of Canada would start raising rates maybe at the end of 2020, not 2022. They would have raised rates a long time ago. Same with the Fed. I think that it, this has been humbling for every sort of major central banker and even for treasury secretaries like Chair Yellen or Secretary Yellen. And so I'm looking at that as, as we as investors, we, we're going to have to be more patient. It's hard. We're in this rolling 30 days. Watch the number. If core comes out negative, that's a big deal. And that'll at least give you some relief rally and it, and until the next month. And we need the confirmation again. But as the months start piling up, then we get the confirmations, then somewhere in the offing is a pivot. And when it happens, it'll be a big deal. Okay, well, tell us about that. So tell us about, you know, other rate rising cycles, the pain, but then, you know, what, once you get through that, ultimately, what, what you're looking at? Well, you know, let me all step back and just think about our portfolio a little bit. So we talked about our five-step process and step three of our five-step process, I'm not going to go through it, but step three is partly where we do stress testing. And we have our hotshot, Stacey Ware, she's a PhD from Oxford at Cambridge. I think they're both good schools, but one of the two, I can't remember right now. And we have Hina Guyan, who's also a a PhD, I think, from Berkeley. And what they're running right now for us is they're both saying to me, Jeff, that there's a massive number of high total return scenarios, like double digit return scenarios in the bond market because the softs was so great. And so a year ago, Stacy was saying, there's no capital gains in any markets, bond market in particular, just sit in your hands, diversify. She's now starting to say in our portfolios, hey, I'm running thousands of scenarios, like she runs 5,000 simulations a day. I'm see, starting to see all sorts of path simulations where there's double digit positive returns, which is to say, as an investor, you should be getting more excited. Like, even though everything hurts, and I know it's hard to talk to your clients, you're getting more excited today, not less. And there's more paths here where the return profile looks fantastic. I don't think we're there yet, but I'm certainly starting to build a lot more liquidity in the portfolio so that we can make some big asset allocation decisions when when and if our macro team sees the all clear or some kind of a pivot in the market. Does sort of the, the overall question of Tina, you know, there is nothing else. It, it, does the rest of the world and how it feels through a recession, I mean, su- supply chains have been garbled, but they are global. Do we not feel the pain from other parts of the world as they go through their own rate rising cycles? Well, for sure, we, we felt it through China with COVID lockdowns over and over and over. And if you actually look at China, you know, its demand for oil and gas fell like 15% in the last like six months. So you've basically seen impact that China's not exporting as much. So its demand for energy is down as well. One of the reasons, by the way, my personal view on this is that if you think that Germany and they've got all the storage and gas and it's not a European issue anymore, I don't think that's fair. I think Germany's just got super lucky that China switched to coal and it has had supply chain interruptions allowing demand. So Germany was able to restock their LNG and get gas. We should not assume that that was anything but luck. And so, that, and the reason I'm saying that- that's, that's fascinating because when China comes out of lockdowns, is, does demand go up again? I would think it'd be hard not to go up. 
just as more people are doing more things. So again, this gets to a point that when you look globally, supply chains do matter and they've certainly been a big piece of our inflation story. ECB has been the most aggressive on that front and, and with that narrative. But I will say it's not like it, it's an obvious thing for some regions, especially Europe, on how they're going to easily navigate the next six months. And the question for them will be, well, they have to go into a hard recession first, which could affect, even if you said the ECB can stop, it still may not feel like a great environment for risk assets for a while. Whereas perhaps in other parts of the world, once those levels are reached, it, it may start to feel like an interesting risk environment. Yep. Yeah. In fact, I was looking at, I think about Canada and the United States, I, and I call it Fortress North America, and it's probably not a good answer, but I feel like, you know, when you look at demographics, whether it's population growth and aging, Canada and the U.S. stand out as having the best demographics. They're not as good as the demographics we used to have, but they're better than the rest of the G10, right? In, in fact, our populations are growing. The reason I say that is when you think about population decline in a lot of countries like China, Japan, have total debt levels three to 400% of GDP with fewer people, that's just going to be a huge headwind to growth in the future because you're going to have to prioritize debt repayment to new initiatives and new growth. So the reason I say this, I think there's this notion that, oh, all of what you've seen on the currency markets with Canada and U.S. soaring versus the euro and the yen and, and, and the renminbi is sort of all, you know, just a cyclical thing. I don't think so. I think a, a chunk of that is secular. And it's because, you know, we've talked with this, Canada U.S. are on an absolute relative basis pulling ahead of the planet. Let, let's talk about the positioning a little bit, your ability to be very tactical in, in moments. So, so again, I mean, with the example of, say, next Tuesday, the CPI number coming out, you walk into this, you'll, you'll tell us the right words, but, you know, balance with some patience, but at the ready to ultimately when we get there. What, what does that mean? What are you able to do to be at the ready? Right. Well, it's a great question. So a year ago, there was basically no capital gains. We had high yield trading at all-time tights. That's when we credit all-time tights. Treasuries were you know, 1% for 10-year treasuries. There was just no capital gains to be had. So we built a portfolio that was very diversified, that had a lot of floating rate notes in it. And we still pretty much have that portfolio today. But at the margin, what we've been doing is picking away and buying bonds that yielding 5% if they're really short, 6 7 and 8%, where we think they're kind of recession-proof and that they have, you know, that th those bonds are going to turn into a lot of gains in the future. We just don't know the timing. And so, we, we, you know, we've been picking away. There's been a bit of a new issuance calendar here and there, but we're not ringing a bell. And Pamela, if you go back to sort of March and April 2020, if you remember, you know, we went into lockdowns and so forth, and the market started selling off. And, and then the Fed got involved and went to breaks to zero, the Bank of Canada as well. And then we had fiscal policy got super stimulated with all the checks. We were telling clients in April, buy everything is not locked down because it was a ring the bell moment. There's no ring the bell moment for, for investors yet. There might be, but there's not one yet. So the reason I'm stepping back is like, and I'm reminding you, because of that, you pick away. I would say keep your liquidity high because, you know, it's not just for your investors' mental health. It's more for you as an investor that you can say, okay, when something becomes a ring the bell moment, I can do a fast trade that's not going to cost my portfolio. And so the big thing I, I've been telling, you know, all of my, my teammates is keep your financial leverage as low as you can. Don't be levered in any trades here. And, and we're not levered, as you know, 
because you want to have flexibility. And what you don't want to have happen is you have to sell something before you can actually attack and take it. That's a painful process because you're not going to like the price of what you sell at potentially. And so that's what we've done. Massive diversification. The portfolio yield is for us is comfortably over 6%. And by the way, because I have like 30% of the portfolio floating, it's like 35. And when, if the Fed does 75 in the next three weeks, we're going to reset 30% of the portfolio. It's another 75 base points. So the, our yield is going to go up by another 25 or 30 base points at the portfolio level. And we haven't done anything. I feel like people listening are going to want us to just back that up and have you say that again. <laughs> Comfortably over 6%. Is that what you said? Yeah. So we're already over 6%. Like that's not an issue. But as the Fed raises rates, right? Floating rate notes are priced off of Fed funds. Well, it's Fed funds plus number. And, you know, in the old days, the old days, a few years ago, we used to call it LIBOR. Now we, we have uh, different parts, different words for it. But you're still priced off of floating rates at government. So when they price 75 higher, and I think I have like 35.5% in floating rate notes now. So you take 35% of the portfolio, and it's going to get another 75 base points in yield in about three weeks. And all that happened is the, the base underneath the stock reset. So the portfolio yield will rise. So this feels like a good moment then to ask. And so thoughts on the use of GICs in this environment. We actually hadn't heard much about them for a long time for lots of reasons. There are different risk stories out there. Why not have a GS, GIC, for instance? So what I would say, this is again, personal view of GIC, is if you get to a world where there's no capital gains left, GIC is great because there's no new opportunity costs. And, and, you know, and, and other than you have to wait till they mature, and that could be a long, hard way, especially if things are rallying. So as opportunity set goes up, you don't want to lock yourself in long term here because the opportunity to make some really big returns. Think about my quant, Stacy. What she's saying to me is, listen, there are more and more draws. Not saying they're all positive. There are more and more 10% return draws, Jeff, in the marketplace. So I can't see how we're going to get to that necessarily yet because I'm not a visionary like that. But when my portfolio team is saying, listen, the dispersion here is high and there's draws that are meaningful and probabilistic, possibly at 10%. The idea of locking in a GIC doesn't make sense. So I would say if you think there's no capital gains in markets, GICs make sense. But the day you think there's capital gains back, I would be out of those and into the marketplace. How much higher could rates go, Jeff? Yeah. So, like, I'm already surprised they're as high as they are now. So you should know that and every client should know that. Having said that, we once we see the, the inflation numbers start rolling over, that will be a huge positive for the marketplace. And so, but we need to see a little bit more of that. So it, it's hard to see for me, like I look at the long end and I feel like 10 and 30 year rates feel pretty good here for all of all I can see. With the risk here is the market is already saying, okay, we've got this inflation thing done and dusted in 10 years, for sure. If we don't, the rates have to go higher. And so you're kind of on this rolling 30-day thing, Pamela, where clients have to sort of, okay, I'm not going to make a huge forecast here. I'm going to see what CPI looks like Tuesday at 8.30, and then I'll make another decision. Because you should know this. The Federal Reserve is going to be watching it Tuesday at 8.30 as well or whenever they get enough. And they'll be making the same decision you are. They're not ahead here. They're using coincidental data or even lagging data to make a decision. So for all of us, this is our challenge, Pamela, is that there's no forecasting going on. We're all now casting. And so what I'd say for people, just I would just stay flexible. 
I would definitely not want to lock in a fixed rate note here for a long period of time that you can't get out of because right. that could be painful just owning it. So here, you know, many of those perhaps that are invested in other parts of the market just, just kind of want to get, you know, the one, two, three. So what do higher yields ultimately mean for fixed income investors? Like what, what is that going to mean as we watch rates rise? What does it mean? Well, I think, first of all, for people who are retired, it's a great thing because your savings work harder and you do, do less and you can retire earlier. One of the reasons I don't think rates can stay at these high, high levels for very long is we just have too many 60-year-olds. You know, I've talked about this. We're going to add 100% more 60-year-olds in the next 10 years. That may not sound like a big number, but the absolute value of that number, the number of actual people is so extraordinary. And think about 60-year-olds. They go from it being in the workforce to out of the workforce. So they immediately change the fiscal situation for governments because people who are working pay into the system. And generally when you retire, you pay a lot less into the system. Um, you also are gonna, we know that the bulk of healthcare costs soar after the age of 60, not the 20 and 30 year olds that they kind of have it, they do a little bit better job. And so the more 60 year olds we have, we know healthcare costs are gonna rise. So you don't have to guess that higher interest rates um, in the long term doesn't necessarily compute in our system. And, and with the number of 60-year-olds, I think they would love it. I just don't think we're going to be able to grab it. I think we're going to keep this for a while, and then we'll get some big total returns on the other side of all this. And we could easily be back to another low-rate regime point whenever we can get comfortable that we got inflation doused. Very interesting. Okay, so this is a question on sort of the risk of recession, the the ultimate, you know, what you see as the landscape for the economic environment. Here's a question, Jeff. Thoughts on high yield at this point? So high yield is at 500 over. A few weeks ago, it was at 400 over. We actually, you know, we sold some high yield a few weeks ago because it was 400 over. So here's the thing you have to realize. 90% of the high yield market, okay, 90% of the names in the high yield market trade it under 400 over still. 10% of the names traded like 600 over. So you, you're still not getting a ton of compensation. Having said that, for that 90% of names, the bulk of them are free cash flow positive. So their bank accounts are getting bigger every day. They've already turned out their debt. So there's no obvious defaults coming for that group in the next 12 months. So even though I would say here, keep powder dry in the high yield space, it's not because I, I'm calling for cats and dogs living together and that stuff. That's not the case at all. It's just the opposite. It's just, you may have to wait and, and you, you get some you know, love from that short trade in high yield could take months and months and months and high yields already okay for now, but I can, so the way I would look at high yield is, you know, if you get high yield with a 700 on it, that's like pretty much back up your truck and buy it. And right now we're not there. So I'd be more patient on high yield for now. There were a lot of discussions earlier in the spring about, and this goes to the cryptocurrency discussion, you know, Stable coins, the role, its interactions versus money markets, and and that sort of got shelved. Is there anything that we need to know about that? You know, in terms of being insulated, the money markets being insulated from that story. So you know, on the crypto space, like you know, my number one issue we talked about almost two years ago is when crypto had a market valuation of three trillion dollars. Whole U.S. banking system is less than two trillion. And my point is, well, that can't be. Does right. anything that takes over for the U.S. banking system? That would still require crypto to go down 50%. I'm still in the same camp. I think crypto can be sort of half the size of the U.S. banking system because 
Because ultimately, the, the hard part is a lot of what crypto will want to do is replace financial intermediary assets. That's the banking system. And so it's hard to have a huge equity valuation. It's not, it doesn't mean it's going to zero. I'm not that kind of play at all. It's just like it has to be sized appropriately in terms of you know what you're trying to take over. So let's go back. We kind of started with the discussion. You discussed volatility, the, the reason for it, some of the reasons for it. There are some big players that are not really in the market in the same way. The Fed, all of the central banks are, are less so. How, how do you sort of see, vol like, have we hit peak vol or is there a lot more to go? Just kind of bring us back to the way we started so we remember that message. So when I think about the daily volatility, how much the 10-year treasury moves, because that's kind of, we're all kind of watching that. I think we should just be ready for it, not to move like it did in the last decade, three or four basis points, but it's going to move like it's seven to eight is a normal day. And that's more like the 19th. It's a lot more. And yet, if you're Governor Macklem, if you're President Lagarde, if you're Chair Powell, you know, when you talk to your team, they're saying that's not necessarily a bad thing because having a little bit more daily vol keeps people from doing more tail things that are a little bit more aggressive taking on too much leverage, it can actually force central bankers, not in the short term, but over the long term, make it a safer investment platform for most of us. That's interesting. So the more vol there is, the less, that makes sense, less likelihood of people getting over leveraged ultimately. Yeah, you just don't get sucked in that you can trade everything for a basis point. You realize, oh, trading has costs. And so you, as, you take more of a, a medium term investment horizon. You start using leverage a little bit less, not, not maybe go to zero, just use it less because you realize that there's exit costs right now. And you know, if you think about one of the big issues, think about the ECB now, because the ECB wants to pull back a little bit, trying to raise rates and then trying to contain its own QE. We'll see about the Italian elections and how that goes. The hard part is if you look at swap spreads in Europe, they've really disassociated, they've sold off a lot more versus government bonds. And so one, one of the things that's happening is there's not a great two-sided market in the swaps market in the European space, partly because the central bank's not there. And so again, if you're using leverage it, in Europe, it's been, it's been more expensive for you. And it hurts because you're doing worse than the actual Bundes cash markets. You're selling off more. That will stop at some point, but it will also though, when you have higher rates and you use leverage, collateral becomes a bigger issue, mark the market and you're forced to you know, grew up every time there's a move, it just pulls a little leverage out of the system. I think that's something as rates go higher, we should assume none, probably nobody here on the call uses a lot of leverage, but think about big investors that are using leverage. It's more painful and they're probably using less now and probably will use less into the future, which is you know, a good thing for stability. Which is a good thing for stability. Thank you, Jeff Moore, for giving us a little bit of a map of sort of how to traverse some very volatile times and maybe just reminding us to use a little patience as your approach invariably takes investors along that road. Thank you for your time. Good to see you. Bye, Pamela. Thanks for joining us. I'm Pamela Ritchie. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. You can visit fidelity.ca for more information on future live webcasts, and don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter. Thanks again. See you next time.